Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Matthew Ford and Andrew Hoskins. Matthew is Senior Lecturer in International Relations at the University of Sussex, and Andrew is a Professor of Global Security at the University of Glasgow. Matt and Andrew are both co-authors of an excellent book called Radical War, Data Retention and Control in the 21st Century, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. This book explores the way in which access to digital technologies has changed our experience of war, and in particular, also the way in which communication by individual participants in wars to outside audiences shapes the understanding and experiences of the war for those actors. So very important and timely issues that I look forward to discussing on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining me, Matt and Andrew. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So first of all, I want to actually ask you a question that I'm personally curious about. I love that this book was co-written by both of you, and it is obviously a very interesting and important issue area. So what motivated the both of you to write this book? Well, it's, I mean, it's partly a kind of dissatisfaction with, with the field or our fields. I mean, we, we come from very different areas, Matthew, more from international relations and war studies, whereas I, my background is sociology, media, media and communications and digital media. So we, we've long had a dissatisfaction with how these different fields kind of think about and talk about and theorise the transformations in war in very kind of isolated and separate ways. You know, there's no real interdisciplinarity. I mean, as we were discussing before we came on air just now, Matthew and I were saying how, you know, we we debate and discuss and argue for the past, you know, several years that this book was in the making. And what that revealed to us was just how different our traditions and methods and theories and concepts and understanding of what war is, let alone what media is, let alone what the relationship between war and media is. So, so unfortunately, the the scholarly field is very kind of splintered and, and, and separate. and doesn't really talk to one another. But also, you know, what about the rest of the world? What about NGOs and, and militaries and governments and, and civilians? You know, I think it's very difficult to come up with a real holistic vision of how these different actors and technologies relate to one another through warfare. And that's what we were trying to set an agenda for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I love how you both come from different disciplines because it's been noted that oftentimes the biggest innovations in a field actually come from someone who's not from within that discipline because sometimes within a particular way of thinking, we can actually become very accustomed to our own concepts, our own theories, our own ideas, and it can actually be hard to bring in fresh thinking that's more broadly accessible to a general audience. So I feel like that's really what both of you have done through that collaboration. It presented us with a real challenge because obviously each of our different fields have different traditions. The use of language became, you know, it was important to use a form of language that allowed us to speak across the fields, right? Uh, And that meant taking out as much of the 
theory and you know to make this as accessible as possible and yet still have enough content that would at least talk to our relevant uh, and relative constituencies but you know we were very conscious even the title radical war it's a bit marmite for people it's going to provoke uh, that's partly our ambition you know not because we want to be annoying for the sake of annoying but because we want to get different constituencies to talk to each other and we think some of the debates that we hear in the military and in social science as as Andrew said they kind of they don't really get at some of the real challenges at least as we understand or at least provoke a debate between uh, respective fields that open up opportunities for further questioning and examination and so that sort of spurred on the idea for mapping the dimensions of war in the 21st century across this the, the idea of data attention and control because we're interested in how data is produced where it comes from how it moves around the networks we're interested in information infrastructures and how these also work to shape attention and also of course attention is shaped by pre-existing ideas perspectives on history and war and then of course there are actual strategies put in place by countries to try and shape and influence our way of seeing through the actual infrastructures that are being constructed and built and and our goal is not to tell people what to think but to just say look we need to if we're going to get into war in the 21st century our feeling is, is that we need to understand how these dimensions relate to each other and how they emerged as constitutive for framing uh, international relations and indeed media and how we understand represent war uh, in the 21st century. So, I mean, it's obvious to all of us that society's modes of communications have changed in general. I mean, myself as a teenager, I actually grew up without a mobile phone, let alone a smartphone. <laughs> and now my 12-year-old, it's obvious that she does all of her communication through a smartphone. So this has occurred also within the domain of war. Like these changes in the modes of communication have also seeped in to that context of warfare, as we would naturally expect. So can you outline some of those key ways in which communications in the context of war have changed? So I'm going to jump in quickly, because I think Andrew's got a, a real grounding in the history and evolution of media and war. But let's just go back to the smartphone for a moment. And one of the reasons why we've been foregrounding the smartphone is because everyone has them. And I don't just mean the West. I don't mean just whatever Europe or North America or Australia. When you look at the statistics, network availability around the world is enormous. The, the first chapter, the introduction to our book is called The Smartphone at War. You know, we recognise that that is principally how people are engaging with this war or the war in Ukraine. You know, you're going to work, you're looking at your phone, you're swiping between Insta on talking about food and cats <laughs> and the next thing you know is, is you're being presented with an image of war or something you know that's a really jarring experience and it's a jarring experience that reflects both the fact that there are people creating content right in the front lines and there are people who are repackaging and exploiting and amplifying that content you know on the other side of the world and so the smartphone is the way into our project at least as we you know mm. especially in light of what's going on in ukraine i mean there's a there are multiple dimensions to the radical war but everyone it seems to me gets it when we say the smartphone has revolutionized the way we record publish upload and consume our media 
Yeah, I mean, and Jessica, you you interestingly kind of hit upon, you talked about how the smartphones kind of seeped into this war. Well, we're kind of, you know, slightly different to that. I mean, if you think about it, like, so pre-Ukraine war, we've got to a situation where the smartphone, as Matthew was saying, is, is absolutely the mode in which we communicate with ourselves, with our partners, with our families, with our work colleagues. You know, it's it's the supreme vehicle through which we come to understand, perceive the world, record the world. There's a kind of, we constantly record the every day. We, we constantly record and share. Along comes a war. What mm-hmm. happens? It's recorded and shared endlessly, continuously. I, I think one of the problems we, not just we have, but the field has, is grasping the scale and the complexity of this transformation. You know, in terms of radical, virtually nothing, no aspect of all, no matter how benign or shocking, is not instantly available to anyone who wants to find it or subscribe to it. It's like a subscription war. How on earth can militaries, governments, and others who want to influence war do anything in this environment? They, you know, there's this traditional idea that to influence war, you've got to influence and shape narratives. Media, social media platforms, they don't compete with each other for narrative, but rather they create distinct, splintered, individual realities. How do you shape an individual personal smartphone reality? So you can operate at this high traditional level of politics and international relations about, and media studies in shaping narratives, but actually something much more interesting, much more groundbreaking is going on in in terms of the, the splintering of realities, the, the paradox, we think, between this, this sense of an overload of unbelievable immediacy of information is that we, we're not any wiser, simply because we just can't imagine how to digest or render intelligible one quick example, this kind of shift in scale creates this challenge of intelligibility. I did my PhD in the mid-1990s, looking at the 1991 Gulf War, and I had all these videotapes, VHS videotapes of the 1991 Gulf War. And there was probably several hundred hours. So I can talk to you, you know, for a long time, if you want, (laughs) about these several hundred hours of media coverage of the 1991 Gulf War. So I have a good grasp of what the media did, what the television media did, with the 1991 Gulf for how it was covered, what kind of images were used, you know, it's kind of a comprehensive set uh, or corpus of information about that war. It's contained, it's limited to hundreds of, hours, hundreds of hours of video, of television and radio. Now, with the Ukraine war, people who are collecting stuff from social media feeds, such as various NGOs who are interested in collecting stuff for use of evidence of war crimes in the future, for example, organizations such as Mnemonic, they reckon they've already got decades of video, decades of video. So hang on a minute. I, I, when, they, when I asked them this question, I came to repeat it. You know, so we've got from hundreds of hours of video to decades of video. The transformations are so fundamental, so rapid, so deep. Mm-hmm. Just to pick up on the technical influence, you know, the smartphone connected technologies have a disintermediating effect on traditional <clears throat> supply chains and value chains in business. Right? So think um, Amazon, people go online to buy Amazon, and the net result is, is that you don't go to the high street to buy your books. This process of disintermediation is affecting the high street, it's affecting business, but it's now also affecting government. And government is taking its time to adapt to that because government bureaucracies are stuck in a sort of 20th century framing. The thing about the smartphone is is that it's also having an effect of disintermediating the military. 
Mm-hmm. So the kill chain has been extended out into society more broadly. And so the Internet of Things becomes weaponized. And this is what we're, I think what we're watching in Ukraine quite a lot. I mean, it may not be the most important factor that's framing war fighting in Ukraine. But the fact that the Ukrainians have released a chatbot that allows people to geolocate and upload standardized information that goes into intelligence fusion cells that can then be used in order to, to crowdsource targeting. And, you know, the, the smartphone's doing that, but also the smartphone is used to power a civilian drone that is being equipped with a, a, a grenade that has been 3D printed, to adjusted and the rest of it. And then the feed from the smartphone gets uploaded onto social media as part of a propaganda effort. People are participating right on the front lines through the technologies that are being orchestrated and created and carved out by Silicon Valley companies and made enabled by companies like Starlink and Elon Musk and all the other bits and pieces. And the result is, is that it's shifting the relation, the traditional understanding about how we think about war in terms of the state, the armed forces and society. And I realise, I, as soon as I say that, people who are interested in Clausewitz conceptualise war in a sort of post-Napoleon, post-1832 to 20th century understanding of war will start grinding their teeth and say war is a continuation of politics by other means on the rest of it but here we're suggesting the technology is is reworking some of these relationships because literally the power relationships between the state and big tech is changing and that set of relationships needs to be understood if we are going to properly understand how war in the 21st century works. What makes the book radical, if you like, is the, the implication. We don't claim to have answers here, but we're just saying, what does participative war do for the existing set of relationships between state, society, and armed forces? And when I saw this chatbot come out, I was just like, oh my God, you know, the smartphone is not just the vehicle for propagandizing, it's a weapon. And everyone has it, the potential to use it. Yeah. And, and you know, the more Matthew and I have been speaking, you know, and talking and arguing over the past few years, the, the more the smartphone, we come back to it. The weaponization of the smartphone is, you know, one of the principal shifts at the heart of this, but also the fact it is such a, a multi-use technology. It enters into the battlefield a whole new vulnerability. We know this from you know wider society in terms of tracking and privacy. And the smartphone is the ultimate identifier of the individual, of the soldier. It's the ultimate exposure. So absolutely, it's a weapon. We use it as a weapon in all those ways that Matthew just described. But it also makes us vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I think it's also really interesting to think about that potential blurring of the lines between what's within the purview of the state and what's within the purview of private <clears throat> actors. Because like you mentioned, Matt, Starlink, which obviously is in control of a private sector actor, Elon Musk. And then we also have smartphones, which our telecommunications networks are not under typically complete control of the government or, you know, state actors. So we're also getting that blurring of the lines there. And, you know, what are the leverage points there potentially for non-state actors? We have a number of different potentially impacted audiences We've got the individual soldier themselves who now has this device in their hands if it hasn't been confiscated before they went into battle. And then we have whoever's waiting for them at home. 
and paying attention to what they're doing. We then also have the domestic populations more broadly. We have people like me who are watching posts on Twitter that are supposedly coming from the battlefront. I don't know if they actually are or they aren't. What's the impact on the shaping of perceptions within a military conflict? I think a good question to ask then is where is the war? And the war is very different in very different places. So we have bizarrely a Western mainstream media that hasn't really shifted much in terms of how it represents, talks about reports on unfolding war. If 30 years ago you'd said to me, oh, in 30 years' time, we'll have this astonishing array of immediate information direct from the battlefield, we would have said, amazing, this will transform coverage of war. And it hasn't. Not in mainstream. The mainstream media are probably more sanitised, more sensorial than ever before. There's been some obviously very disturbing images and disturbing events from, from Ukraine, such as the massacre at Butcher. Mainstream media would, you know, tell us as audiences, oh, we're going to show you some kind of blurred out images of bodies. This might be distressing. And you might say, well, that's, that's all well and good because, um, you know, we don't want to upset people. Hang on a moment, you know. We're talking about war, but I think fundamentally the biggest shift is this growing paradox or growing disjuncture between a censored, sanitized version of war that the Western mainstream media think is appropriate for us as audiences. You know, they have certain what they see as standards in terms of provenance and fact checking and all of that versus a social media platform war where you can see anything and everything. And when we talk about social media, it's, you know, we don't like that term in the sense that there are so many different kinds of social media platforms and apps now, which give you a very different version of reality, a very different splintering of perceptions of war. You know, on Telegram, you can see some, you know, Telegram's virtually unmoderated. They're just streams of, it's like war porn, you know? We just find it bizarre that the mainstream media will cluster around, for instance, a massacre or a capturing of some British soldiers and threatening them to death and, and saying, well, this is a breach of their human rights. This is a breach of the Geneva Convention. This is a war crime. And that may all well be true and be worth drawing attention to, absolutely. Meanwhile, on Telegram, a stream of war crimes, a stream of breaches of Geneva Convention. So you have this Western mainstream media giving us a very sanitized, a very contained, a bizarre version of war, whereas millions and billions of other people are consuming war through their different, very different, highly tailored social media platform feeds. And, and that disjuncture seems to have, it seems to have widened. But just to quickly add, it seems to me that in these circumstances, where does it, how is attention framed? It's really going to be, multiple strategies are going to be employed to try and drive attention in different directions. But it's it's fair to say that there has been lots of information wars going on. There are different information wars going on in India, in South Africa, in Latin America, in Australia, in China, in, in North America. And it seems to me that what you, what we have here is, is the multiplicity of narratives, the multiplicity of uh, discussions and we all as Andrew says disappear into our own little preferred places where we can hang out with other people that we like hanging out with who confirm our particular interpretations of what's going on and that's the point I think you know we have to you know, have a sense of the epistemology the theory of how this information lands on our on our smartphone if we're not conscious of the provenance of these things it's very easy to get us whipped up into different storms you know we have to you know, have a sense of you know, different platforms different policies and of course all of that's the military sensor can't cope with that, can't keep up with that, can't dictate or shape 
what comes up and out through the battlefield. And that is something that we define or frame as a, uh, the new war ecology. Mm-hmm. There's a different ex- speed at which narratives are working, right? And that those speeds are working in a way that frames politics yeah. in a way that the armed forces and politicians struggle to keep up with. Uh, of course, you know, armed forces are large bureaucratic structures with hierarchical structures with multiple domains, and then you run straight back into the problem that they have, which is that they have lots of domains, cyber, air, navy, army, space, and then they put information on the top of that. But that's exactly not how people are engaging with the world. People are engaging with the world through their smartphone. The smartphone shapes and dictates how we are seeing the world. It's an entirely digital interpretation of what's going on. And, you know, the armed forces in their attempts to try and are being disintermediated by this thing, right? Completely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What is familiar and comparable with this wall, with all of the walls, is that attention falls away. So after one month, news audiences fell off a cliff mm-hmm. for the Ukraine. So this is a kind of bigger question, you know, if we have all of this coverage and all of this information at our fingertips, and eventually, ultimately, attention just disappears. You know, so what does that tell us about the nature of media and war? Uh, well, we can suggest that perhaps there's a difference between accessibility and availability. You know, we may have all the information in the world available to us all the time about this war and other wars, but it's not humanly accessible if we can't somehow make sense of it, render it intelligible and process it in a way that's meaningful to us that leads to some kind of meaningful action in response, be we in a military, be we in a government, or be we a civilian sitting here in the UK or in Australia. Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's really the orchestrating of attention, not just the providing of information. Yeah, and it's true also that if we can't actually respond and act ourselves, we can just feel increasingly hopeless. <laughs> and then, you know, inevitably- you It's the emotions and the exhaustion with yeah. constantly being fed a different emotional line that creates yeah. that sense of, oh, I just want to get back to, you know, talking about cats or food on yeah. Insta. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Matt and Andrew. I've really enjoyed the discussion. Maybe just finally let listeners know where they can find it. Out more about the book and about your project? So the book is out with Hearst in the UK now and will be out with Oxford University Press in the States on 1st July. We've also got a web page which is www.radicalwar.com. We recognise that we can't have a book about all things digital and not have some kind of online presence. Uh, you can follow me on at War Matters and we have, uh, what's our Twitter f- feed? Is it War Radical for? At War Radical, yeah. I'm on Twitter at Andrew Hoskins and yes, thank you, Jessica. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. For me also. And of course, I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode. Mm-hmm.